Well, good morning, church. We'll do better than that. Good morning, church. Glad you are here this morning. Can I get a little more light there, Michael? I can't hardly see because I'm blind. Thank you, buddy. So we're glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be picking up here in a minute. And as you probably remember over the last several weeks, we've really seen Jesus kind of step into these, these conversations with that, not individuals, but large group conversations. And what we've seen is that Jesus really kind of advocating for the idea that we are to embrace who he is. And so he challenges people that come around him that he wants them to embrace that, that first and foremost, that he is God, right? And to embrace that he is life changer. And to embrace that he is our provision. But ultimately to embrace something we talked about a couple weeks ago, as that he is the only one that can fully and finally satisfy the desires and the hunger and the craving of our soul. It's just him. Now, unfortunately, we saw last week is that after Jesus expressed that to many, a multitude of people, after he talked about embracing all those things about him, we ended last week with one of the most horrific passages you can end with in verse 66 when it says this. It says, and people walked, what? Away. People that Jesus himself had said, I want you to embrace that I'm God. I want you to embrace who I am and what I've done. I want you to embrace that I'm the only one that can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of your soul. And the end result, because of how he was going to do that, they walked away. I don't know about you, but I've known people like that, haven't you? Had all the right information. And when it came to decision time, they walked away. And I often wonder, why do people walk away from the Lord? I don't know about you, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. And so when I realized that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior, I was all in. Because I'm like, I know I can't do this. I know I don't get this. And I know I need King Jesus in my life. And so I, I was all in at the age of nine. I, I mean, I got that and I was on board with that. But I, I struggle wondering, why do people walk away? Why do people hear the greatest truth that could ever be known to mankind and they choose to simply walk away? And I believe it's because of spiritual blindness in their life. I think they've got some blinders on that need to be identified and to be exposed. And so today what we're going to do at the very end of the message, I'm going to point out three spiritual blinders that we've seen all the way from John 5 through this verse today, in particular the passage today. The three spiritual blinders that, that I want to talk about at the end of the message. But the first thing I want us to do is look at three different things before we get there. In John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context before I read this. All right? So, there's an event that's going to be mentioned here. I'll explain it in a minute called the Feast of Booths. And I want to give you a little bit of timeline. This event in chapter 7 is six months after chapter 6. Now, Doug, how do we know that? Because in chapter 6 and chapter 5, we had this idea of revolving around the uh, Passover, which always happened in the spring. Well, the Feast of Booths happened five days after the Day of Atonement, and both of those were in the fall of the year. In fact, the Feast of Booths happened somewhere between late September to mid-October. So even though in your Bible it goes from chapter 6 to chapter 7, there's a six-month gap between these two. And I want you to look with me. The first thing I want you to notice is found in verse 1 through 5. It says this, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go, in, no longer not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, 
came, the feast of the booth was at hand. Now, I want to pause there for a moment just to remind you ge geographically, Galilee is north, Judea is south, and right in the middle is this big area called Samaria. So Jesus north in Galilee, the Feast of Booths was happening in Jerusalem in the south, and so they would have to go either through Samaria or around Samaria to go to this feast. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to go right now. But ultimately, this Feast of Booths was a really big deal for a Jewish person. It was one of the many feasts that Jews celebrated during this time. And even today, they celebrate this. But in particular, it was one of three major feasts that if you were a male Jew, you were required to be at. Now, here's what the Feast of Booths was about. It was a time that they would come together into Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of people would show up, much like Passover. They would come into Jerusalem, and they would celebrate two things. First of all, they would celebrate, because it's the fall. What happens at the end of the fall if you're a farmer? Anybody know? Harvest, right? And so they would come in, and they would celebrate all the harvest that God had brought them. They would celebrate all the things that God had blessed them with. But not only they would celebrate the provision of this year's harvest, they would celebrate their ancestors and remember their ancestor provision that they had received while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so they would come together and celebrate the, the harvest they had received, but also God's provision way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And when they would come, a couple things would happen. When they would come, they would bring their offering, their tithes, and they would offer to the Lord because they just got their harvest. They would come and they would offer some animal sacrifices would take place there. And when they would come, ultimately, it's, the reason it's called the Feast of Booths is because they would stay in tabernacles. Not a, a tabernacle with a roof like this. It was basically brush that was a lean-to, and they would live in that for eight days. Eight days they lived in it. The, the feast began on the Sabbath, and it ended on the Sabbath. And they would stay in these tabernacles or these booths for all eight days. And so that's what's going on. So we're six months removed from Passover, but we come across the second, one of the biggest events in all of Jewish history that every male was to go to. Now let's go back to the story. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast in the booth was at hand. Listen to this. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. So you would pause there for a moment and think, maybe they're encouraging Jesus because he's a male and he's a Jew. Go fulfill what you're called to do. But look what happens next. For no one works in secret if he seeks to know, be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers, what? Believed in him. Here's the first thing I want you to see in the passage. I want you to notice with me the animosity toward Jesus. The animosity toward Jesus. You know what the word animosity means? It just means hostility. But there was some severe hostility toward Jesus. On one side, there was hostility from the Jews, right? And you may say, well, they wanted to, he said here, you're, you're seeking to kill me. And so if I go to Judea, they're going to they're gonna kill me. I know what's going to happen. And, and so why were the Jews seeking to kill Jesus? Well, we kind of know, don't we? You say, well, Doug, well, it's because he healed on the Sabbath. Well, that's not the main reason, but that's the straw that broke the camel's back, wasn't it? He healed on the Sabbath. He made a guy that was lame and crippled and invalid, and he made him whole on the Sabbath. And so on that day, because that broke all the rules, they were upset with Jesus. But really, why they wanted to kill him was because of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. 
And he claimed this truth, that I am the only one who brings salvation to the world. So if you want to know the Father, it comes through me. If you want to have eternal life, it comes through me. So it wasn't just about the miracle. It was about the claims of Jesus. I'm God, and I'm the only way of salvation. And because of that, the Jews sought to kill him. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever had anybody seeking to kill me. Have you? I don't think I have. I maybe upset a lot of people, but I don't think I know of anybody. So I don't know the weight, maybe my wife, but I don't know the weight. I don't know the weight of what that feels like to know that I have been pursued to take my life. But Jesus feels the hostility. He knows these Jews are out to kill him. But it wasn't just the hostility, animosity of the Jews. It was the animosity of his brothers too, right? Right. Look, we'll go back to verse 2. It says, now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also know the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe. What was his brothers trying to get him to do? Go public. We want you to go in there, Jesus. We want you to show up in Judea with all this fanfare. Now, is this coming from a place of belief or coming from a place of skepticism? It's skepticism, right? Because the Bible says even his brothers didn't believe. I know some of you are hung up on that. Yes, Jesus had brothers. Mary and Joseph had other kids after Jesus, and he had brothers. And so even his half-brothers didn't believe in him. And so their attitude toward him was hostile. Like, hey, we want you to go to Judea, go to the Feast of Booths, and we want you to show up with a great deal of fanfare. We want you to show up and show out. We want you, if you claim to be who you say you are, prove it, Jesus. Prove it. Now, listen. They completely disregarded that this could have been the end of Jesus' life, didn't they? I mean, if, I don't know about you, but I have two siblings. I love them both more on some days than other days because we're a lot alike and we bicker from time to time. And really, it's the other two, and I'm kind of the middle person, but, but I get that. But I, can't, I cannot imagine ever wanting to send one of my siblings off to a place where I know their life is going to be taken from them. Can you? Can you imagine that? And so like, Jesus, if you are, you say you are, go prove it. And totally disregarded that this could have taken his life. And so what they wanted was they were like, okay, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, make a move. If you're the one that's come to rescue the world, Make a move. And when we look at this story, what I want us to see is the high level of hostility there is between the Jews and Jesus, but also his brothers and Jesus. And then Jesus responds to this hostility. I love his response. Look at me in verse 6 through 9. So much wisdom here. Look at verse 6. So Jesus said to them, in the face of hostility, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So you go to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, what is Jesus saying there? When he addresses their animosity of the brothers, what is he saying? First of all, he says, you're not going to force my hand. I hear you. I know your motives. 
And you are going to force my hand. He says it this way. He says, for my time has not yet come. In other words, the time for me to put the, me on the path to go to the cross where I will enter the last days of my life has not yet come. In fact, just as a timeline, this is six months after Passover, but it's six months before the final Passover when Jesus will enter Jerusalem for the last time. So he says, hey, my time has not yet come. If I go this route on your timetable, my life's going to be taken. And it's not God's will yet. But he says, but your time is always here. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Your time is always here. What is Jesus getting at? He's saying this. You don't care about God's timetable, so it doesn't matter to you when I go. Now, do you think this is a little bit of a rebuke Jesus is giving his brothers? He's like, listen, you want me to go. You don't care that I'm going to die. You want me to go openly and be the Messiah who you know, comes in with all the bells and the whistles and everybody oohs and ahs, and you don't care whether I die or not. Listen, I know, I know when my time is coming. I, I know the Father will reveal it, and I'll go when it's time. But for you, it's any time. For you, you don't, you don't care about the things of the Father. For you, time is all the same. This is a little bit of an insult to his brothers, was it not? Come on, was it? Yes. But look what he says next. Let's go back to the verse. I love this. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Pause. So he's telling his brothers, the world's not going to hate you, but they're going to hate me. And he tells them why they're going to hate him. They hate me because I testify about the works, and they are evil. So Jesus starts out by going, you're not going to force my hand. And then he concludes by telling them, he's like, listen, when you go to Judea and you go to the Feast of Booths, your reception of people is going to be different than my reception. See, my reception is going to look like this. They're going to hate me. Do you know why they're going to hate me? It's because I'm going to point out evil. I'm going to call sin what it is, sin. And I'm going to stand on truth, and I'm going to stand on Scripture, and I'm going to stand on the, the, the purity and the holiness of God. I'm going to stand, and when I stand, people aren't going to like it. But you, they're not going to hate. What is the implication of that comment? You don't stand on truth. You don't have convictions that differ from the world. You're not going to call out the evil that you see. In fact, your convictions look a lot like the world. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus facing all this animosity from the Jews and from his brothers, and he addresses his brothers and said, listen, I hear you, but you're not going to force my hand. And when I go, my reception is different. They're going to hate me because I'm going to stand for truth. But they're not going to hate you. You know why? Because you don't. Ouch, right? Now, I want you to look at me, church. Here's a truth I think we need to glean from this. If we choose to stand on the truth of this word, and we believe this is the very breath of God, infallible, inerrant, that God spoke through authors, 40 different authors, and he breathed into them the Holy Spirit, the very words that are on these pages. If we believe that and we stand on this truth and we say that we believe, thus saith the Lord, you too will be hated. You too will be hated. If we stand on the truth of this, the world is not going to like it. In fact, can I be real honest with you? Maybe somebody beside you is not going to like it. 
And so maybe you look at your life going, okay, maybe I don't feel that people are against me. Maybe, maybe I don't feel the, the animosity of people around me. Maybe it's because you're not standing on the truth. Maybe it's because you look so much like the world that nobody knows the difference. And I'm just telling you, church, what I believe God wants us to do is to stand on the truth of the word. Can I get an amen for that one? I believe it. And when we do, the world is going to notice. And the world is going to hate us. Then Jesus does something unique. Look at me what happens next. He, he addresses the animosity toward him. And look what he does in verse 10 through 13. I love this. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, another little more time gap has happened, then he also went up. Not publicly, but private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, whom some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So here's what happens. Jesus sends the brothers on the way, and then he decides, okay, now it's time. Now it's time for me to go. But when he went, did he go with all the fanfare? No. He went privately, not publicly. Well, why did he go? Well, because it was required in Jewish law for him to go. For him not to go would have been disobedience on his part. He just wasn't going to go when the brothers told him to go. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to notice, and it's found in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up, and he went up into the temple and he began teaching. The first thing we saw was the animosity toward Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus here is going to offer full transparency. I don't know about you, but we live in a world where transparency is a good thing. Amen? We like to know what's going on. We don't want to be left in the dark. And so Jesus, knowing there's uncertainty, he knows they're wondering who he is. He knows there's some that are like pro-Jesus and some are anti-Jesus. He knows that. So what does he do? He quietly and privately shows up on the scene, and he begins to teach. And look what he begins to teach, verse 15 and 16. It says this, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he is, when he is uh, never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. What's the first thing Jesus begins to teach him? He begins to teach him the source of his teaching. He's like, everything you've heard me say, I didn't come up with it on my own. It wasn't me. Everything you've heard me say, the truths that I've taught, all the thus say the Lord moments, everything that I've said, everything you've heard me say didn't just come out of my own wisdom, my own knowledge, and my own experience. It came from the Heavenly Father who sent me. So in other words, I'm not quoting a famous rabbi. I'm quoting God. And when you hear me, it's as if you're hearing him. So he points to the source of his teachings. Look at verse 17. Look what he does next. If anyone will do God's will, I'm sorry, if anyone will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Another one says, listen, here's the source of my teaching. It's him. But if you need to be sure of what I'm teaching, just take what I'm saying Compare it to the scriptures and just see for yourself if I'm saying anything contrary. Because here's what I know. If you are submitted to God, if you're living for God, if you're living for the Old Testament scriptures, what you're going to know is this, is that everything that I've said 
is true. So if what I'm saying leads you to greater obedience to the Father, it's truth. If what I've said leads you astray from obedience to the Father, it is false. You should know what I'm saying is true. So if you want to be sure, test my words. Now, real quick sidebar. This should be something that you should do every Sunday morning when you leave here. Don't you ever take anything that I say as concrete without testing it and approving it through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Because listen, men will try to lead us astray. And this should be the, 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 this should be the, the motto for every pastor in the world. Is like, you take everything I say and you compare it to Scripture and the Holy Spirit and you make sure and test and approve that it is from the Lord. Jesus said that. And then there's one more thing he teaches, verse 18. He says this, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to still kill me? So look what he says there. Let's let's go back to verse 17. I want to tie these two together. If anyone will is to do God's will, he knows whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own what? Glory. So what does Jesus point to? He teaches them the source of his, of his teachings. He points to how you can be sure. But then he says, I want you to see my selflessness. My teaching is not about building my own glory. My teaching is about building whose glory? God's glory. And if it's about me, which it was about him for us, but he's like, listen, everything I've taught has come from the Father, been sourced by the Father, and I've done it to bring him honor and him glory. But here's where you land. Even with all of that, you still want to kill me. So Jesus goes in and he offers full transparency. Here's where my teachings come from. Here's how you can be sure that it is from God. And here's ultimately the reason you should know it's from God. is because my teachings are about giving him glory, not even myself glory. And then look what happens next. Verse 19. It says this. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So the Jews look at him and go, listen... You're talking about us wanting to kill you. You're the one with the demon. In other words, if you were to translate that, what they're literally saying to Jesus is, hey, we hear you, but we still think you're crazy. We still think you are crazy. That leads me to the last thing I want you to notice. Verse 21 through 24. So Jesus has dealt with their animosity. He's offered full transparency. Look what happens in verse 21 through 24. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, because the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge my appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Here's what Jesus does last of all. He confronts their hypocrisy. Jesus flat out confronts 
their hypocrisy. He's dealt with their animosity. He's offered transparency. Now he's at the point where he's like, enough is enough. And he confronts their hypocrisy. And look what he says there. I did one miracle on the Sabbath. And you've come unhinged. I took a guy that was an invalid, and I healed him, and I made him whole, and you have come off the rails. Yet, Moses, on the other hand, has this idea of circumcision, which happens eight days after birth. And if someone was born eight days before the Sabbath, on the eighth day they must be circumcised, and he had to be circumcised on the Sabbath. And with Moses' law, and doing it that way, you allowed him that allowance. You gave him that freedom, but you don't give it to me. So circumcision on the Sabbath is okay, but making somebody whole is not. You see how he's calling out the hypocrisy? What's good for the goose is also good for who? The gander, right? Some of you have to look that up later, right? So he's saying, listen, you, you're okay with circumcision on the Sabbath because it's required by the law. But you're offended that I took someone and made them whole. On the Sabbath. And he ends with this. He ends with, stop judging my actions based on your tradition. And start judging my claims based on Scripture. When he talks about the right judgment, what is he referring to? He's referring to Scripture. He's like, listen, you need to stop judging me, judging my actions based on your man-made tradition. And start judging who I claim to be based on Scripture. I love this. Jesus dealt with their hostility toward him. He offers full transparency, and then he calls out the hypocrisy. And here's the thing. When we look at this story, and even some of the previous stories we've gone through, what I hope we can see is that there really are three causes of spiritual blindness. Three things that we can see in this story, and we can see even previous stories that lead to spiritual blindness. And I want you to write these down. Here's the first cause. You ready? It's arrogance. One of the reasons that people are spiritually blind is arrogance. Why were the Jews spiritually blind? Because they were arrogant. They thought they knew how the Messiah was to come. A few weeks back, Drew talked about expectation. He talked about what they expected the Messiah to come like. And because of their man-made thinking on that, they missed it. They were blind. Their arrogance to say, we know how the Messiah is coming. And listen, if you read the Old Testament... And they would have had probably most, if not all, of the book of Isaiah. You can't read Isaiah and not ponder on Isaiah 53 when it talks about the one who's going to come who will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And it's by his stripes that we will be healed. There had to be a moment for the Jewish leadership to go, that's a troubling passage if it's not a part of the Messiah's journey. But they ignored that. They arrogantly thought they knew how the Messiah was going to come. He's going to come with great fanfare, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he is going to wipe out Rome. And listen to me, church. Arrogance led them to spiritual blindness. Let me give you a second reason for spiritual blindness. It's this. It's ignorance. Ignorance. Jesus' brothers stubbornly ignored the works and the words that he spoke and that he did. They just ignored it. They paid no attention to it. 
They didn't listen to what he said. They paid no attention to what he did. They cared nothing for it. And the reason that they were spiritually blind is because of their ignorance. They were zoned out. They were like, who cares what he says? Who cares what he's done? We're just not sure that we buy into it. And so they want him to go and even have his life taken from him. Ignorance leads to spiritual blindness. Let me give you a third one. Arrogance, ignorance, and tradition. Tradition can lead to spiritual blindness. Now, what was the tradition of the Jews? Well, there was a lot of tradition of the Jews, but ultimately the Sabbath was something that was a part of the law, but yet they took what God had established and they added man-made traditions and elevated those traditions over the truth of Scripture and held everybody to that standard. Did you hear me on that church? They took a biblical principle and they brought man-made traditions into it and they elevated those man-made traditions over what the Bible teaches and they held everybody to this standard, not this standard. And because of that, spiritual blindness. Now, real quickly, let's let them off the hook for just a moment. Because I think many of us, if we were honest, would say, there's maybe been times in our life where we wrestled with spiritual blindness too, right? Can you say that? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Listen to me. You're spiritually in blindness today. Maybe it's because of arrogance. Maybe the arrogance of you thinking, hey, I can do my life on my own. I can figure this out on my own. At the end of the day, I, 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 can, I can do enough to make God happy with me enough so I can get into heaven. And listen to me, that is arrogance. You're not going to get there like that. Or maybe it's ignorance. Maybe you think that you really can do more good than bad, and somehow when the skills tip in your favor, God's going to go, whoo, I'm so proud of you. And I'm going to let you in. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you never trusted Christ, and you've got the spiritual blinders on of arrogance or ignorance. And my prayer for you is, you would ask God to help you take the blinders off. That he would help you see this morning that he is the only one that can save you. That what you need desperately is him. But for all of us in the room that are believers, I think we too can wrestle with some spiritual blindness. I think too, we wrestle with arrogance. The arrogance that says something like this, that you know what? I think God should operate on my timetable because I feel like I know best. Anybody wrestle with that one? I know you do. I do. We all wrestle with it. We've got a plan, and we chart it out, and we like things to work according to plan. And maybe we think God ought to see our plan and go, you want, it'll save me a little time. I'll just go with your plan. And we think that's how God should function. And it's arrogance for us to say that our way is better than God's way, that our timing is better than God's timing, that our path is better than God's path. That is arrogance. And maybe that's leading to spiritual blindness. Maybe it's ignorance. You know, a while ago, Alejandro and the band was leading us in the song, Here Comes Heaven. And I was sitting there, I thought, you know what, what a moment that must have been when heaven was emptied out with the sending of the sun in Bethlehem on that day. And what a moment that must have been. And I think sometimes for me, yeah, it's arrogance, it causes spiritual blinding, but sometimes for me it's ignorance. I forget all that God's done for me. I forget how much he loves me. I forget about all that he wants to do in me and through me and a part of me. I forget those things. And so because I forget, I begin to do life my own way. 
And maybe you're a believer today and you're spiritually blind because maybe it's arrogance, maybe it's ignorance, maybe it's tradition. And what I mean by tradition is maybe you're more concerned what everybody else thinks instead of what God thinks. And I just want to submit this to or share this with you this morning, that when you look at these Jewish and you look at these brothers, where did their arrogance and where did their ignorance, where did it lead them? A path of uncertainty and a path of hypocrisy. And if you and I as believers choose to stay in the path of spiritual blindness, whether it's our arrogance, our ignorance, or our tradition, thinking we care more about what people say than what God says, listen, it will lead us down the same path. It will lead us down a path of uncertainty, and it will lead us down a path of hypocrisy. And so what I want to challenge every believer to do today is this, to say, God, would you break my heart of my arrogance? God, would you revive my soul of my ignorance? Lord, would you help me care more about what you think than anybody else? And God, would you give me a spirit of humility? Would you give me a spirit of surrender? And would you give me a spirit that passionately lives for you? And I hope you'll make that decision this morning. Let's all stand together if you would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed.